Hi, I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with a Slate spoiler special on Harry Potter 7, also known as Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. Joining me from our Slate DC studios is Dan Coyce. Hi, Dan. Hi, Dana. And Dan, as we know, is Washington Post movie critic, a contributor to Slate, contributor to Vulture magazine, um, all around bon vivant, and uh, and my Harry Potter <laughs> go-to source because you are. Can you can you give me some of your background here? Give your your cred on on Harry Potter. Uh, well, I wrote all seven of the novels, <laughs> and uh, I took time out from my busy schedule of setting piles of Buddy on fire to come in here to talk to you. Uh, no, I you know I'm a big Harry Potter fan. Um, with Deathly Hallows in particular, I'm, I was excited to see this movie because several years ago when the book came out, when Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, the seventh book came out, uh, in the summer of 2007, um, I uh, wrote for Slate um, alongside a bunch of other great people a um, Slate book club, a spoiler book club about the Deathly Hallows in which you know the book came out on Friday and the Monday after the book came out. Uh, me and a couple of other writers talked, did a basically a spoiler special book club of the book over the course of So you of read the 700-page book over a weekend? Yes. We, um, uh, we sent our daughter away to her grandparents' house for the weekend and bought two copies of the book and spent – this was the first weekend we had had, my wife and I had had by ourselves since our daughter had been born. And we spent it both reading Harry Potter. <laughs> Which, of course, now that your daughters are older, you're going to have to read all the way through again with them. Oh, well, I, luckily, um, I basically know it by heart. So I won't necessarily even need the books. Uh, but, yeah, so I, I re- I'm a big fan of the Harry Potter books. I've uh, been a um, increasing fan of the Harry Potter movies as they have gotten better along the way. Um, leading up to this one, which we can call Harry Potter 7A, uh, the first half of... Uh, this movie comp- takes the first half of the last book of the Harry Potter series and commits it to screen. Right. It's directed by David Yates, uh, who directed the fifth and sixth movies before this and who will also be directing the second half of the seventh movie after this. So he's basically uh, that- taken the helm. I mean, they, they kept going back and forth between one director and another. And then now suddenly this guy has just taken over. Do you think that that's because he's the, the most comfortable with the – I mean, why why did David Yates get the reins at the end? Because I don't think um, he's he, made the best Harry Potter movies necessarily. He hasn't made the best Harry Potter movies, but he made one particularly good one with one particularly difficult book. Um, the fifth book, I think everyone was – I think everyone probably inside the franchise was pretty worried about that movie because it was a tricky book. Was that The Order um, of the Phoenix? Yes. Um, Total stab in the dark and I got it. Nice. Almost done. said The Temple of Doom. Uh, yes, it was – Harry Potter and the Raiders of the Empire Strikes Back. Um, but no, it was a difficult book um, to deal with because it just dealt a lot with um, Harry's roiling emotions. Um, and uh, and it was the first book in which the story got substantially darker throughout. And I think that Yates did a good job with that movie. He didn't make a magnificent movie, but he made a really good and solid movie. He obviously was comfortable with the technical team. Um, that movie was very accomplished technically and and from a effects standpoint. And I think they just made the decision that f- as the story got darker and more intense, as everything – as sort of the stakes – not only in the story, but in the franchise financially got higher, they were better served to just hire one guy and let him keep doing stuff than to basically have to like retrain a new director in how to make a Harry Potter movie every time. So, so Dana, what in the end did you think of this movie? Were you satisfied by it or did you feel like it was, it was just setting the table too much for you to actually enjoy what was going on? 
You know, I guess my whole feeling about the, the Harry Potter series is, is this kind of ambivalent affection. I mean, it, it, it doesn't really speak to me on some level. I haven't read the books. I think the movies are for people who have read the books, which is obviously a huge number of people. I don't know that the movies should have to be standalone objects. Mm-hmm. But since I've experienced them as standalone objects, all I can do is compare it to the other Harry Potter movies. And I thought it was a pretty good one. It has a lot of these long spaces that we talked about toward the end. But, uh, but in some ways, as often happens in an action movie, the static bits that don't advance the story and don't zap anybody are, are some of the most interesting of all. So, yeah, I, I think that I would say that as much as I can like a Harry Potter movie, I like this one. <laughs> a rave review from <laughs> Stevens. Um, yeah, I, I, I um, you know, I, I, I'm the opposite of you in that in that respect. In that, I love the Harry Potter series and have always found the Harry Potter movies both uh, totally enjoyable for what they are and totally frustrating for what they aren't. Which is to say that I, I think I've said this before on a podcast with you. To me, the ideal version, the ideal Harry Potter movie would be 74 hours long and would be a BBC miniseries mm-hmm. with all the same actors, but would be a completely uncut. Basically, transliteration of the of what's on the page to film form, um, and so in the absence of that ridiculous thing, which probably should never exist, um, I found this movie really satisfying in that it opened up and gave the character space to sort of have the emotional moments that I that are that are most enjoyable for me in the series. Um, the few additions and changes that it made to the to the books were actually some of the best parts of this movie, I thought. Um, you know, as an example, that scene at the very beginning when we see Hermione cast a spell on her parents to make them forget her. Um, that's a scene that doesn't appear in the books. It's referred to, but it doesn't appear in the books. And as an opening scene, I thought it was really, really effective and sad and interesting. Um, and uh, and so I really like this movie a lot. I don't think it's my favorite of the Harry Potter movies, but I think it's, it's up there. Um, and I think... As I, I think that in the end it's going to be uh, – I'm going to enjoy this one more than I enjoy the finale, which will have its own charms but will not have what I like best about the series. All right. So um, uh, at the end of the last movie, uh, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, um, Dumbledore died, right? Uh, Albus Dumbledore, the headmaster of Hogwarts and Harry's uh, mentor. Played by Michael uh, Gambon, who I miss now Michael that he's gone. Um, it died. We did get to see a brief glimpse of him um, in this movie, uh, lying dead in a tomb. So that was gross. Um, <laughs> but uh, but so he died, but not before giving Harry a mission, basically, which is to find these magical objects called Horcruxes. Uh, and a Horcrux in the world of Harry Potter is a is a uh, an item of special significance in which um, Voldemort, the movie's big bad villain, has secured, vouchsafed a part of his soul. He split his soul into seven parts so that he cannot be killed physically, even if his body is destroyed. And so before what we assume to be the final face-off with Voldemort someday, Harry and his friends must find these seven items in which Voldemort has hidden parts of his soul and destroy them so that once they actually defeat Voldemort's body, he actually will perish and depart from this earth. Um, So uh, at the beginning of the movie, Harry uh, knows that he has this mission to go on. Um, And so unlike all the other Harry Potter movies, this movie does not follow the sort of traditional beat by beat, you know, counterpoint or beat by beat plot points of Harry in the Dursley's house. Harry goes to the borough to hang out with Ron. Harry gets on the Hogwarts Express. Harry arrives at Hogwarts. There's dinners. There's classes. There's a trip to Hogsmeade. There's the end of the year and then everything wraps up. In fact, Harry doesn't go to Hogwarts at all. And um, the movie, this movie never visits Hogwarts once. 
Um, and so uh, instead, um, at the, near the beginning of the movie, um, the Ministry of Magic uh, is finally overtaken by the forces of evil. The Minister of Magic, who we briefly see, who's played by Bill Nye, um, is is overcome. He's killed. Um, Voldemort and his followers take over the Ministry of Magic and soon are transforming the magical world into, I mean, basically uh, a... A reign uh, of terror, of, sort of, right? Yeah, I mean, mean, a contemporary version of 1940s Germany, I think, would be, I mean, uh, would be one way of putting it. A, a place in which uh, muggles, non-magical people, are oppressed. Um, wizards who are not pure-blood wizards, who do not have a clear line of ancestry through the oldest wizarding families, um, are stripped of their wands and sent to prison. Um and a place where Harry Potter specifically uh, is being hunted at all times um, by Death Eaters, by uh, by Snatchers who are just sort of roving bandits going out looking for people who shouldn't who are where they shouldn't be. Um, and so Harry and Ron and Hermione spend much of the movie on the run. Um, first in the Order of the Phoenix's old headquarters and later uh, out in the countryside in tents in a number of very scenic British locales. Um, hiding out and trying to figure out their next move, um, how to find a Horcrux, how to destroy it once they do find one, um, and how in the end to l- launch the fight against Voldemort. How's that? Did that? That wasn't that was an excellent summary. So, what is in there that we need to to get to spoil in? Um, well, so so in a so they find one Horcrux, right? Um, they learn that uh, that um, Dolores Umbridge. Uh, the character played by Melda Staunton, who is so memorable as the the toadying, uh, simpering villain in the fifth Harry Potter movie, um, has one of the Horcruxes, a locket in which Voldemort is, has hidden part of his soul. And so they launch a raid on the Ministry of Magic, a pretty entertaining raid in which they assume the forms of grown-ups um, after, uh, who work in the Ministry and uh, infiltrate the Ministry of Magic itself and uh, steal the Horcrux from Dolores Umbridge. Um, but then they are trying to figure out how to destroy it. They know that the Sword of Gryffindor, the magical artifact that Harry got way back in the first movie, uh, or uh, in the second movie, excuse me, in his fight with the Basilisk in the Chamber of Secrets, is something that can destroy a Horcrux, but they have no idea how to find it. Um, there's a big fight between Ron and Harry um, uh, that is spurred on by Ron's jealousy of Harry, um, his frustration with their inability to to proceed on the on their quest and his feeling that um, Hermione loves Harry more than he loves Ron. More which we should Ron. say is aggravated by the drug-like power of this Horcrux thing, which is right. sort of like the ring in Lord of the Rings in that whoever possesses it and has it on their person starts to become strange and mean and kind of obsessive. Right. In the books, it just it basically it's, it's something that just puts you in a terrible mood and just brings all your darkest thoughts to the surface. And I mean, that's illustrated pretty well. Um, in the movie, it was simply by giving whoever's wearing the Horcrux really sunken, dark eyes. You wouldn't be saying any of this if you hadn't been wearing it all day. I don't know why I listen to that radio every night, dear. To make sure I don't hear Ginny's name. Or Fred. Or George. Or Mo. Oh, you think I'm not listening to? You think I don't know how this feels? No, you don't know how it feels! Your parents are dead! You have no family! Stop! Stop! Finally, go! Go, then! You can go through the plot point by point, but really what is happening is that the heroes are treading water, 
making very incremental steps in their progress. And what we're meant to pay attention to more, I think, than the sort of blunt plot points of this are the interactions between the three heroes and the way that they come apart and then come together again. I think for kids especially, that's going to be the drama of this of this um, episode, of this movie, is watching them cling tightly to each other as danger comes, watching them fall apart, and then watching a fairly impressive reunion when Ron comes back, saves Harry's life, destroys the Horcrux, and they all come back together again. Right. I mean, so in spite of the fact that this movie is stuffed with plot, and in addition to all the complicated plot points you just detailed, there are tons of other threads that we could get into if we wanted to. But right. yet, there's a stillness at the heart of this movie, and a big part of the movie is quite static and doesn't really advance any of those stories at all. And I think that's actually the best part, the most interesting part, where they're in these empty, the three of the kids, and occasionally just two of them, when Ron runs away for a while, are in mm-hmm. these empty landscapes with these, these tents and these bunks and all this camping equipment that they mysteriously produce from this bag, this magical purse that Hermione he carries around with her. It seems like that part almost takes place in this this teenage fantasy world that that is not unlike the Twilight movies in the Twilight series to me. And that it right. was it was about you know these this threesome and these two boys that she's sort of choosing between and just them inhabiting this blank space of nature. That's almost as if they were just I don't know just sort of dreaming the whole thing. Right. Yeah. No. And it's interesting. You know, in the in the book, those scenes last forever of them in the tent and. Uh, and takes so long to get through. And I remember the first time I read the book feeling like, oh, my God, when they make a movie out of this, it's going to be, like, fatal. Um, but the, but one of the things I really like about this movie is that Yates – I mean, he boiled it down and those scenes sort of whipped by um, much more quickly than they do in the book. But he did also, as you say, turn it into a pretty impressive psychological drama. I mean, impressive when you consider that he's – this is the first time – in these movies, in all seven of the movies, that the three kids are forced to carry long, long stretches of a movie all by themselves with no help from the starry British talent surrounding them, um, without really even any help from special effects. You know, they're not fighting a three-headed dog and they're not, you know, jumping through time and fighting werewolves. It's just them dealing with each other as people in a tent and right. it plays, and also it as plays actors, surprisingly well. I was just going to say and they're also dealing with each other as actors without the, the, the scaffolding surrounding them of you know the greats of the British stage who are in any of the Hogwarts scenes in the earlier movies all you have to do is turn a corner and there's you know some storied actor of, of fame and, right. uh, and, and it's the three kids whose acting has you know habitually been criticized as somewhat stiff particularly Daniel Radcliffe so it is I thought it was really great to see them just interacting with each other and, and I agree that they're all getting better I don't even know if they're getting better they're they're just inhabiting those characters even more. Who knows if they'll ever be able to to carry that on to anything else because they're so marked now by these roles. Right. Well, and it's and and in a way, I like this movie for being sort of a valid, uh, sort of a valedictory movie for those three. Because in the next movie, you know, Daniel Radcliffe will have emotional stuff to do, but the next movie, honestly, is just going to mostly be gigantic fights. I mean, not to spoil it for you, who doesn't know what's happening, but. There's, I mean, you have to know and assume that there's going to be gigantic climactic showdowns. And so the next movie is going to be almost all effects and fight scenes and duels and war and stuff like that. And so this movie is the movie where the three kids really get to have their moments. Um, and I like that the movie gave them that time and that space. I mean, it is jam-packed with plot. And I did wish that the pace had slowed down at times. But it does give each of them – 
quiet moments to interact with each other uh, and to show off the the relationships that they built, um, which which I which for a fan of the series is really gratifying because that in uh, in the end is what we love the most about the books. What we love the most about the books was not. Harry fighting Voldemort, but was Harry being with Hermione and Harry being with Ron and the friendships between those three. Um, and so those are the action scenes in this movie, honestly. Um, and those are the things that I think kids are going to get the most – are going to find the most moving and interesting. That's sort of making me dread the, the last chapter 7B because to me the Harry Potter fights have always been what works the worst, at least on, on screen. Maybe in the book it's different because the spells that they're saying or whatever have some history. But it no, really does still... just look like, like wands with zappy lines coming out of them to me. And I'm always just waiting for those scenes to be over. No, it's a little better in the books. I mean, I mean there's a lot – going on and there's more than just wizards shooting spells at each other in the final action sequences um, but yes th- there is going to be a lot of that and and it's always going you know it's always going to come down to Harry and Voldemort shooting their wands at each other and they've the series has never really found a way to make that particularly dramatically compelling um, and, it, and it's not that dramatically compelling in the books either um, and so yes I, I have a hunch that there will be things that I really like about the final movie about 7B, which opens in July. But I also have a hunch that I'm going to end up liking this movie better than that one. And it's something that's not that present in this movie because, as we were saying, there aren't as many adults around. We're not at Hogwarts and the kids aren't as surrounded by grownups. But I really appreciate that the whole Harry Potter series is very respectful of the relation, of the teaching relationship, of the relationship between older adults and, and younger kids. And that in a way, yeah. these don't really feel like youth movies, even though, though they're about the romantic travails of, of teenagers for, in a large part, because they're also so much about teaching and listening and going to the old guy or the old woman who knows more than you do and, and learning from them. And those scenes always really, really touch me. I love the scene where they go to see Reese Ifan's character, Xenophilus Lovegood. Is that the guy's mm-hmm. name? Luna's father? Yeah, Lu- Luna's dad. For one thing, it's great to see Reese Ifans in this series. It's sort of like he was the only British actor of note who wasn't there, and I suddenly realized that he was missing the whole time. And he's really terrific in that role, and I love the, the whole setup of this weird house he lives in and everything. But there's this really great moment where um, Hermione produces a book, an old book from her mysterious bag that seems to contain everything in the world, and reads this story out loud as, as he listens. It's a story I think that he wants her to tell, if I remember right. He says right. the story of the three, the, the oh. Deathly Hallows. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a beautiful story. And the way that it's told is in these things, this animation lo- that looks almost like Indonesian shadow puppets that I thought mm-hmm. was really beautifully done. And it was one of the few moments in the Harry Potter series that there was something that looked really different than I expected. You know, the art direction style completely changed and the storytelling style completely changed. And for just maybe this 10 or 15 minute story, there was this sort of stark shadow puppet show and I just thought that was a, a really great part of the movie yeah it's really nice it's the animation was done by Ben Hibon who um, is an animator I didn't know very well before he's done a couple of anime series but this is a, like a showcase piece for him and a really great part of the movie it's go- the animation is gorgeous um, and you're right that one of the great pleasures of this series and and definitely in the books is that sense of kids learning and you really tracking their intellectual development as it as it happens through through mentorship their mentorship yeah and and in this movie it's tougher to sell in the movie and it's a much more an aspect of the books but in in Harry Potter and the Death, in the Deathly Hallows the way that that is explored is that Harry begins to question especially in the first half of the book 
um, everything he once knew about Dumbledore. And you get a taste of that in the movie when Harry's talking to that old witch and that old wizard at the wedding early in the movie. And that witch says to him, you know, Harry is surprised to find out that Dumbledore grew up in the same town that he grew up in, which he never knew. And he never knew that Dumbledore had a brother. Um, and so the old witch asks him, uh, you know, Harry, you know, are you sure that you really knew Dumbledore at all? And the struggle for Harry throughout the first half of the book and to a lesser extent through the movie is coming to terms with the fact that even though he had asked everything of Dumbledore and Dumbledore had taken such an interest in him that Harry had never actually gotten around to learning anything about Dumbledore's past. He never knew what he was like as a boy. He never asked him about the sort of the great battles that he'd waged. Um, he never asked him anything personal about himself. And so he's realizing sort of the gaping maw in the middle of that relationship that had been so important to him. Um, and that's a real emotional struggle for him in the book. And, and it's there in the movie, although that's a lot harder to dramatize. Um, but I think they are setting up setting that up for the second half of the movie, which will address that further and which resolves that in what I think is a pretty interesting uh, and pretty satisfying way. All right. Well, come July, you know that I'm going to be calling on you again to come in and talk Harry Potter with me, Dan. Good. I'll be very excited to. All right, Dan. Well, thanks again for joining me. My pleasure. Our producer was Krishnan Vasudevan. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens.